0: Hi, I'm Ryan Guth. Each week, I'll be sitting down with inspirational men and women whose energy makes our city a more interesting place to live. So whether you're new to Albuquerque, just visiting, or have lived here your whole life, ABQCast is my way of sharing these conversations with you. Now let's get to it. Hey there, Albuquerque. This is Ryan Guth with ABQ Cast, and today I am sitting at Los Poblanos in Los Ranchos, in the heart of Albuquerque, New Mexico, at this beautiful historical inn and farm. And today we're going to dig into what Los Poblanos is, its history, why its architecture, uh, the John Gaw meme architecture, is so iconic here. And, and what are the amazing things that Los Poblanos is doing here for farming in New Mexico and outside of New Mexico and in why they attract the people that they attract that absolutely love this place. And I think it has a lot to do with their executive director who we're going to speak with today. Just a couple examples of their accolades, Food and Wine has mentioned them, Vogue Magazine, is goo goo ga -ga about their lavender. The LA Times, Bon Appetit magazine calls them one of the top 10 hotels in the country for food lovers. And just this morning, the New York Times mentioned Los Poblanos in their 36 Hours in Albuquerque article as well. They have the first swimming pool that was ever in Albuquerque. They have all this incredible architecture and and a rich history. And to share that with us is... Like I said, their executive director, his name is Matt Remby. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Ryan. So, Matt, uh, bring me back to, I guess, the late 70s when your parents (laughs) acquired this farm. This is from the Sims family, correct?
1: Correct, correct. The original farm, We basically my parents bought one half of what was kind of the original headquarters of Los Poblanos. Uh, Not the full ranch. The full ranch extended all the way to the base of the mountains. So the Sims family had two residences here and they lived in one of them and the other one was kind of a public building called La Quinta. It was for kind of a quasi art center. Uh, But they had a 25 acre farm and gardens. And so this was really kind of their home. They were still doing some farming, but very little, but it was part of a very kind of large enterprise at one point. So my parents just bought half of it. So they, they bought half and we lived in, you know, the original hacienda, which was designed by John Gamim. Uh, They were huge fans of John Gamim's work. In fact, we moved from another John Gamim house. There's sort of like a constant link to John Ga meme. They sort of, he helps peel back the layers of New Mexico and he's still very integral to kind of our business model. And so what happened was another family owned the second half and that second half was another 10 acres with La Quinta, which is the, the, the more public building, which had an art gallery that was open to the public and a, one of the first pools in Albuquerque and a ballroom and men's and women's locker rooms. And so... That came up for sale and was going to be developed with about 10 to 14 homes. And the homes were, at that time, this was around the 1998, nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine. the houses were between like eight and 15,000 square feet apiece. And so my parents were empty nesters and we all, as a family, just were worried about it being cookie-cuttered up and kind of losing its history. So... We were never in the lodging business. we didn't have any experience in the in the restaurant business, so we bought it and put the two halves back together and came up with a plan to try to preserve it and so that's that's kind of the the history of how the business evolves but yeah, we all I had three siblings and then the family next door was had another five kids, and so we were it was like a huck Finn you know childhood you were Riding your bikes on all the little ditches. And we went to Alvarado Elementary and Taft Middle School. And my siblings went to Valley. So, taking buses or riding our bikes to school. And we had ramps over all the ditches and rope swings over all the ditches and had our tons of chores because we had, you know, we were sort of light farmers. So, I was in charge of the chickens and the pigs. And my brothers were the sheep. And, And so, my parents had us busy as kids.
0: So I taught you apparently a, a work ethic maybe when you were a kid your parents instilled quite a work ethic in you by raising you on a farm.
1: Yeah, it made a big difference. And so part of you know, we it was such a such a beautiful place to grow up. I mean not just Los Poblanos, but the North Valley and right next to the Rio Grande River in central New Mexico that we all kind of gravitated back. And when this came up, it was not it really we all had kind of other things going on, but we just felt it was important enough to try to put it back together and preserve it it was our home so we went and we we'll, we can talk about that but we went into a long process of trying to figure out we didn't feel like we were owners we felt kind of we were more like stewards of mm-hmm. the property and so but it was because we just had such a great life in, at this place and I had a, a kind of a deep understanding of why it was special
0: so i do want to talk about that i do want to get there the thing i want really want to know first to maybe set up the audience as to uh, how your parents even came to acquire this property. Were they business people or were they living in Albuquerque?
1: So my my dad was an oncologist and he's one of the first oncologists in New Mexico. And he and my mother, my mom was originally from Texas, from a ranching family in Amarillo. And my dad was from Seattle. And they had, uh, all my siblings were born before me outside of New Mexico in Boston and Dallas because he was doing his training. But because we had a family ranching business, my grandfather ran cow-calf operations in southern New Mexico on the St. Augustine Plains that they just wanted to be near the ranch. My father, who was never in ranching, just loved the idea of raising his kids near the ranch. And so they moved here in the 60s and right away absolutely loved New Mexico. I mean, just they they were introduced to a really dynamic group of people. Some of them were teachers and scholars and artists and anthropologists and, you know, people through UNM Art or the Junior League of Albuquerque, or John this architect. And so there was a guy named Donald Robb, who's kind of like the Alan Lomax of New Mexico. And you know, Alan Lomax was the first guy to record all the blues. I mean, he would actually go to the cotton fields and record blues. And so he's like a really important guy in music internationally, because he recorded Lead Belly and all these guys. Well, we live right next door to a guy named Donald Robb, and Donald Robb was like the Alan Lomax of New Mexico. All his archives are at UNM, and he was recording music, folk music, Hispanic folk music, Native American music by using his car charger. And driving all over New Mexico recording this stuff and it hasn't even really been unearthed yet it's it's now available to be listened to but it was all these weird little stories they they like right away they interacted with these interesting people that had a profound love and interest in New Mexico and so they right away was their home and so we ended up living next door to these people in a John Ga-meme house, and they lived in a jong house. And so that sort of brought us in this world. And then when the Sims place came up for sale in the 70s, my parents were very interested because it was one of, you know, John Ga-meme's more important homes that he built. And then it had, you know, it was attached to this farming. And so it was a great place to raise your kids.
0: So, so by osmosis, your parents really got sucked into the New Mexico culture here. Now, let's talk about John Gallmeme, obviously architect, sort of mid-century, what, Santa Fe-style
1: architecture? Yeah, they, they they call him the father of Santa Fe style. But, you know, he was one of the first registered architects in the state. He was half Brazilian and half American. Okay. And he was not from New Mexico, ended up coming to New Mexico because he had tuberculosis. And so he was on the East Coast. He was trained as an engineer, but moved to Santa Fe to recover.
0: Okay, so he wasn't in that Tejaras tuberculosis camp up on the the mountains there. Okay, he was in Santa Fe.
1: No, and it was a pretty well-known place. And the doctor, it was right outside of Santa Fe proper. The doctor really encouraged everybody there to take up hobbies that would help them recover. And it was, it was sort of an intellectual aspect, like okay. your mind would help you recover faster. So you just didn't become a patient, that you were just sitting around letting the air heal you. It needed to be a kind of a multi-pronged.
0: That uh, sounds kind of Santa Fe to me. It, yeah,
1: it is. It yeah. T- it is uh, <laughs> and it worked. Uh, so the guy, he no one else spoke Portuguese except a, a Portuguese artist named Carlos Vieira. And Carlos Vieira was kind of at the forefront of the preservation movement. And they understood and recognized that New Mexico had its own unique architecture. It had the oldest European architecture in the United States, and it had the oldest architecture because it had uh, Native American architecture going back thousands of years. So, you know, the first buildings in America. And so we have this opportunity to, like, brand ourselves as a state that for its own authentic architecture. He probably wanted to do his own, like, new styles of architecture and be... More of a modernist, mm-hmm. but he recognized right away the importance of all these New Mexican churches and New Mexican squares and plazas and these styles. And so he, he invented, kind of cemented uh, a style called territorial revival, which is what these buildings are, which okay. is... Albuquerque didn't have its own style of architecture, and a lot of Anglos were moving here, and just it was a kind of a hodgepodge of of architecture, Um, lots of arts and crafts homes being built downtown, and and so John Gamim thought, well, if we build a style that appeals to Anglos moving here but is authentically New Mexican— then Albuquerque could really look like its own place. Okay, and so that's what this architecture is, and it's called territorial revival. So it has brick coping, Greek pedimented windows and doors, and otherwise Mexican and Spanish elements all kind of brought in together. Uh, he was a master of light. He was great at handling the, the the desert heat with with deep porches, portales. So he just really became the most important architect for New Mexico, certainly, but we kind of feel like we can't really, in talking to architectural historians, we've made the argument that there's been no architect that has had individually a bigger impact on a state, on their respective state, than John Gamim. And so it's a great way to teach people about New Mexico and peel back the layers of our history, looking through, you know, the way he builds and designs.
0: And so if somebody's interested in learning more about John Gamim, is Los Poblanos uh, like a one stop shop for real, like a is this the crown jewel of what he has he did for Albuquerque here? Or, um,
1: it's, it's one of them, uh-huh. it's one of the crown jewels. Um, it was a UNM campus, he d- designed over 20 buildings there. Zimmer, okay. Zimmerman Library was designed by John Gameme, it's a spectacular space. And that campus doesn't look like any of other campuses in the United States because it's it was a style that John Gameme created for riffing off of traditional New Mexican architecture. But he did the La Fonda Hotel as after it was a Fred Harvey Railroad Hotel done by one of the leading female architects in the United States. Uh, But she hired him later in her life to finish that project. So there's other great buildings that John Gamim did. What's interesting about this site is that John Gamim did lots of public buildings he helped restore major churches like at Acoma, which is a really important building na- on a national level. And there's a wonderful book about how difficult it was to restore and preserve that church. And so he was taking some of the best elements of, of Spanish architecture, the, the mass of the walls, all the, the materials and wonderful uh, woodwork. And, and he was reviving a lot of that stuff. Some of it was dying out. So really great tin work and carving and iron work. He revives it all. And this is 30s and 40s, so some of it's during the Depression, during the WPA, New Deal period. So he's credited as kind of perpetuating and preserving and saving kind of some of the best examples of architectural and architectural artifacts or or hardware and things like that. I mean, he he designed everything in, in these spaces, you know the light fixtures, the door handles, the radiator covers, every and because he was an engineer, they just work extremely well. The cross draft, the the craftsmanship, the and so Yeah, we we grew up in these buildings and we're and so we have a deep appreciation for them. So if someone comes and stays here, they can stay in the original building. I mean so the original hacienda you can request to stay in those rooms. There's about Six guest rooms in the main hacienda and then another four in out that are all original. And we've even added some new, you know, when we added new buildings, UNM, they tore down some old John Gomin buildings that were not in good shape. And we took all the materials and wove them into these new rooms. So the uh-huh, vigas ve- okay. and beams and corbels we put into the new rooms. So even the new rooms have some John meme authentic DNA in there, which is fun.
0: Are we sitting in a John Gawmeme building right now?
1: We're in a John Gawmeme building, but this room is not John Gawmeme.
0: Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So where did your family live? Did they live, is there a house on the property where your family lived? That-
1: yeah, so we lived in the original Hacienda, but when we decided as part of the preservation plan to activate the property, and, and it, was, it was a market-based plan, so... A lot of preservation plans, it's usually people like the Rockefellers or found big foundations and wealthy families who can endow some sort of fund or foundation to keep them going. Those models don't work anymore. Mm -hmm. So the National Trust of Historic Preservation was looking for new ways to preserve these buildings in other markets like in Chicago or New York or L.A. or San Francisco. Important architecture by Frank Lloyd Wright or Mies van der Rohe or... Philip Johnson, they have to just keep raising money to preserve these places. And then they're like museums, Mm -hmm. but they haven't been able to perpetuate it. So some of these places are actually closing as museums and being sold off and going back to residences or being developed. So we had a a market-based model. and, And so now we were recognized by the National Trust of Historic Preservation as creating a new paradigm of historic preservation, which is really just activating the property. Uh, so you can stay in old John Jonga Meme buildings, and so that's the best way to experience it.
0: So it's not a museum, right? You know, that's no, the no. beautiful thing, right? No. So you said it's a market-based solution, and, and you you guys were one of the first to really activate a property. So you're not having to—I mean, I've, I've been to the, some of the Vanderbilt properties and things like that. And you walk through, and there's the velvet rope, and you can't touch anything. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you have a so sort of a much more natural hands-on. You can be amongst the beams. That's right. You know, that's that's very cool. Yeah. So why now? Why are you the one in charge? What you have four siblings? What brought you to this position specifically?
1: My siblings are all in different businesses So I have a, a sister who uh, runs and owns Smiths, which is a gift shop founded by my mother
0: That was the next stop on my way out of here <laughs> That is my one of my favorite stores in Albuquerque, oh, great. That's and they're not really paying nice for hear. this right now. That's, so that's really nice. I love Penny Smiths.
1: Well, she started those businesses when we were pretty young in okay. the '70s, and one of them started at Los Poblanos. Penny Smiths, the original Penny Smiths, started at Los Poblanos. Okay, in one of the old foreman's house and which that has the bell on it and that's the where they would they would gas up and they had a way station there for all the, for the the corn that they grew on okay. the property and they had gas stations and they had a bell on on the roof that they would ring for all the workers to come in for lunch, and then at lunch they had little buses that would take them to their homes at lunchtime on Griegos, right down the road here. Sure. So they would take long lunches; I think it was up to two hours, and then they'd go back and pick them up, and then bring them back, and then they would continue working. Uh, but that's where the original Penny Smiths was, and then my mom moved it a couple times. It was down on Central and Fourteenth Street, and now it is where it is. But she had three businesses all next to each other: it was Penny Smith's, Penny Smith's paper and the valley deli and so she was making baguettes and bringing in you know triple cream cheese that no one had ever seen before in albuquerque and she so she was she was a definite entrepreneur she created a new mexican catalog where she was trying to ship people green chili like in the 80s and Chimeneas, you pack chimeneas with pignon and send it all over the United States. Great ideas, but that one was a complicated business, so that never took off. Okay. But her other three stores did very well, and so my sister runs uh, runs. She took over that business about twenty years ago.
0: That's hilarious. That's so cool. And and I, I didn't we didn't say this in the beginning, but I I, I want to introduce the reason I know Matt is because Matt bought my couch. In 2017 <laughs> and he's sitting on it right now I'm jealous actually I had moved here from New York City and I had posted this couch on Craigslist and it had been there for six months because it's some Danish modern couch and nobody apparently wanted to buy it and until I guess Matt unearthed this post six months after I posted it or I had re- maybe had recently reposted it or something and this guy with a full beard shows up to my apartment in Corrales at the time, and uh, with a beat up pickup truck, and he's like, "I own a farm." And when I asked him what he did, I own a farm. And then he just takes this truck, he hands me the money, and drives off. And little did I know that I was talking to Matt, who I'm sitting here today, who runs Los Poblanos, you know. And so I was joking with him earlier. I would have charged more for the couch, but you know <laughs> that 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 whole thing, you know. And so now Penny Smith's. I mean, I'm telling you, yeah, yeah. man. Well. And again, yeah, it's they. A great, did, it's
1: a great couch, by the way.
0: It is a great couch. I'm not even sitting on that couch. I'm sitting on a different couch. And who today. is the designer again? This is a a Morganson couch.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it's, it's got a curved arm cushions, curved leather cushions, with the nice Danish modern little toothpick legs, and yeah, yeah it's a great couch. So I, I asked for right of first refusal if he's <laughs> going to sell that couch. But so, how do you go from okay, I live here to I've been away for school. You clearly have a deep appreciation of Latin American art, which I think probably fits in very nicely to what you're about to do by coming back here and running this. How did that, I mean, how'd that start?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I I guess I didn't answer your other question that sort of the two are tied. So I have my oldest brother lives in Kentucky and he's in the in, in healthcare. So okay. he wasn't going to do it. Then I have a brother, Jay, who's a, who's a real estate developer and does really thoughtful kind of mixed use projects in downtown Albuquerque. But it was, you know, it was, it was complicated. It had lots of little pieces to it that, and I, uh, I was more of an entrepreneur than I suppose my siblings were, but kind of was good at marketing and branding and, and the whole Latin, you know, I was in the Latin American art business. Were you
0: excited about it? Were you excited about doing this?
1: Well, yes. I mean, it started out as much more of a, less of a business and more of sort of a challenge on, from a preservation standpoint. And so... We started looking just as a family. We were doing this together as a family before I took over entirely. My parents were running it as a small bed and breakfast, as a six-bedroom bed and breakfast. But we knew... In the
0: original hacienda?
1: They were, but we, it was because the zoning didn't allow us. We could have legally done 35 single-family homes that were 10,000 square feet apiece mm-hmm. uh, without any permission. We were asking to add some guest rooms and leave most of the land open and preserve it, and we couldn't get the entitlements and the permission to do it. The neighborhood and the the village of Los Ranchos just didn't quite understand what we were trying to do, so we asked for a little time to show them, if we opened it up on a small scale, that it wouldn't have a negative impact on the neighborhood. And so my parents ran it when it was a really small business. So they did that from 2000 to 2005. So my okay. mom was cooking breakfasts and my dad was checking people in and they were full innkeepers and he was a retired oncologist and she was retired from running these other businesses. And But it's 25 acres. It's 25 acres of gardens and fields that need to be farmed and old buildings and greenhouses. And so... When we bought that second building, it was really designed to do formal events in. The big deal of experiencing in John Gamim here is that you could experience both public buildings and private ones. So he was great at residences and he was great at public buildings. This is the only place anywhere, and the only place in the world where you could, spe- could experience John Gamim's designs that are both a residential example, a great residential example, mm-hmm. and a great public building example. With clients that had really deep pockets. Mm-hmm. They're the Sims. So Ruth Hannah McCormick Sims and Albert Sims, she was from Chicago and had worked with great architects, and she owned the Chicago Trib. Oh. And so she was able to work closely with John Gamim and they didn't pull out any stops. I mean, they they basically had access to the best artists and artisans in New Mexico, and then they used them all in this building, which John Gamim didn't have that advantage with other buildings. So these are two of his better examples. But I love that aspect of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just, I love the art and the history and the, everybody who'd worked on it and the tin work and the architecture. And I had affinity for architecture and design. And so after a while, we started looking to what was the highest and best uses and lodging was an obvious one for Mm -hmm. on the residential side. The building for La Quinta was obvious for events. But really, without putting a 200-room hotel on property, it wasn't going to pay the bills. You needed Mm -hmm. to come up with a market model that would work to keep all these gardens going and just the overhead of keeping the place up. So we started adding. So I came in, started adding other businesses, put together a business plan for not only my family, but for the village of Los Ranchos so they understood what the long-range goals were. And so that was repurposing some of the old agricultural buildings that were falling down and into what you see them being used for today, which is retail, agricultural production of our lavender products, kitchen and restaurant, and the bar. Those are all in those old dairy buildings that were basically defunct in the 50s. They were beautiful looking from the outside, but they were about to fall in on themselves. So we were able to save them and then... uh, create a use for them, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that synced with the entire business model. So we started adding these other businesses because our guests wanted food and, um, and how do you get people to go come to Albuquerque from New York or San Francisco? It was like, what well, you know, what are the stories that they want? They love the architecture, but once they got here, they didn't necessarily want to leave. They wanted to be fed and we were farming organically so then after a while the restaurant evolved and we made lavender products and we decided to sell and brand those lavender products and so we now have about five different businesses on property farming if you if you include farming a sixth mm-hmm. so it's it's retail and e-commerce we <laughs> with have, the lavender right oh, okay right and food we you know we we make our own food products as well not okay. a ton but some and we have um, uh, wholesale manufacturing. So okay. we make these products on site and we do all the design and marketing and branding on site as well for all the products. And then restaurant, events, and lodging. And so those are the five. And then the sixth would be the farming side of things. So our farmers are actually selling to the kitchen and they're selling to the wholesale production department. An invoice is so the literally,
0: business transaction, even though it's all in the same property. Yes they're buying from each other and that sort of thing interesting
1: it's to turn them into market based making good decisions based on for it to be a sustainable business so they they have to communicate and think about hey oh yeah you want garlic this year so i grew all this garlic they bring it in actually maybe that's not the best example because garlic you can dry and store so if they bring it all in the kitchen buys it okay they buy it and they, they can store it but if it's fresh and the kitchen's slammed. Let's say we're about to have like a, a frost that's coming. Mm-hmm. They'll harvest all the poblano chilies. The kitchen is busy with full house. And also they prep all the food and prepare all the food for all the weddings and events that we do. So their team is slammed. And then all of a sudden the farmers come in with three, 400 pounds of poblano chilies saying, okay, we had to harvest all these because the frost is coming, and the kitchen has to figure out a way, drop everything it's doing, not drop everything. Sometimes they'll they'll turn some things into a special that night. Mm-hmm. They will maybe freeze some. They will process some. They'll dry some, and they will pickle some. I mean, they just try to find all the uses they possibly can. And in the next year, while we're planting they'll have that conversation again. Are you sure you want poblano chilies? Can you use them? Sure. And that's the idea is to be growing and also growing things that other people aren't growing because we support all the farmers in in the Rio Grande River Valley. So if someone else is growing it well, we try not to grow it.
0: I see. It's very responsible. I mean, the way I think about it, it sounds like it's responsible. It probably reduces waste to some degree, right? Because you're going to, make them think is, was this really the right thing to grow last year? Can we, how do you kind of find, maybe fine tune it? Yeah. You know, every year in that way. So there's this sort of maybe, I don't want to, I'm not sure if I want to say like capitalistic element that sort of happens within the property, right? Where if we don't need it, doesn't it make no sense to grow it? There yeah. needs to be a market for the thing that one of the businesses is doing in order for it to make sense even though I, mean, I could just see how maybe off the wall this could get if these were not operating as independent businesses because then there's that there's a bit of accountability that's that's missing
1: yes i mean that's the idea i mean there's certainly plenty of things that we do that are we're a triple bottom line business so mm-hmm. it's it's the it's the 3p's it's people profit planet. So we're very concerned with the, the, with being good stewards of not just the history and the architecture, but the soil. So mm-hmm. we farm organically, no pesticides, no GMO. Th- that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes there's things that are tough to grow here and or it needs more water. Mm-hmm. So we're, we try to use In fact, all the plantings that we've done on property are all we've done in the last 30 years are more all water, low water use plants. That Lavender uses a fraction of the amount of of water than any other crop in New Mexico. So, or I should say, you know, a traditional Mm -hmm. crop. And then we turn it into a value-added product. Mm -hmm. And then it's part of the guest experience. So they're showering with lavender products made on site, opening up their window and smelling lavender, seeing farmers harvest it, and sometimes it makes its way into a dish.
0: Or a drink. Uh,
1: or a drink. Right. And, um, and then we're selling, you know, making product on site, selling it. So that's where our businesses, all the businesses here are very synergistic and supporting each other. But they're actually all separate businesses. Mm-hmm. So that's the challenge. Because they're separate businesses. They all have their own software and their own, you know, compliance issues and legal issues and expertise related to it. And so... Getting all the departments to communicate in a way that's smooth and makes sense for the business model, that's always the biggest challenge. And that's why it's a pretty dynamic Business model, and we're really fortunate we have some amazing managers and staff working here that have helped make that work and that still that make it work, but it is not easy it's a constant challenge for it to work because farming is not easy to begin with, especially organic farming where fifty percent of your of the work that you're doing is probably manual labor uh, weeding and then the other fifty percent's other manual labor so but if everything's clicking. It's beautiful. And then that's what the guests get to experience. They get to see the kind of full evolution of and how everything ties together here.
0: So Matt, tell us about a time when it didn't click or when you, I don't, I don't don't believe in failure. I believe in (laughs) feedback, you know, so is there, was there a high feedback moment in the development of Los Poblanos into where, what it is today where you were like, man, that I, I learned something. I learned a hard lesson.
1: Oh my gosh. It happens weekly. Uh, (laughs) No, I, I, you know, we really encourage everybody to take risks here. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot, been a lot of things where we've fallen on our faces. Some are where you plant an entire field a certain way and you've done your research and you've had the experts come and, and instead of just planting a row and testing it for a year, you decided like, let's just do the whole field. We're all in. Yeah, we're all in. And it's a huge cost. So what um, was
0: that? What what Was there a particular crop we Yeah,
1: we've done it with lavender where you go and amend the soil of the entire field and we're in, down in the valley with a bunch of clay and, and actually lavender hates clay. Oh, okay. Hates clay. Now it loves New Mexican climate. The heat is great. Mm-hmm. The perfect weather for lavender is in Provence, France and that you go across, I get my lat- latitude and longitude mixed up, but so you go right across, it's longitude, right? Lata-
0: latitude <laughs> is east-west. Uh,
1: okay, so you go on your lat, you go latitude all the way across, and where is that? In the United States? It's like northern. It's it's in southern Oregon.
0: I was going to say, because Squim, Washington, is like the lavender capital of the Pacific Northwest. It is.
1: And they don't get much water. They have Everybody thinks it's just a ton of, of rain. Yeah, they're in there. the rain shadow of yeah, the Olympic Mountains. That's right. So I think they get 10, 12 inches a year. Albuquerque, we get 6, 7 inches a year. So it does well there, but but we have a ton of clay in the valley. Mm-hmm. It'll die if it hits clay. Okay. So we'll, we amend it with other crappy soil. I mean, you try to get well-draining soil, even... Just crusher fine, it would be good for it, mm-hmm. but it's not good for other crops. So you're taking a big risk by turning over your entire field. So we will, we would do huge amounts, and we propagate the the lavender, and then it's a lot of labor to put it in, and you're putting you know row covers and or or ground cover, and and then you realize that you got the soil mix wrong because you didn't test. You just rolled the dice and said, okay, this is what the books say to do. We've talked to all the experts in other states. They don't know New Mexico. So we've made some big mistakes on that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We made some mistakes early on trying to get buy-in from the neighborhood, thinking that they were all going to love this idea. And we just made assumptions. Like, of course, they're going to love us opening a business up in their neighborhood. But... We just kept on thinking, oh, we're going to save all this land. It's got history. It's John It's we'll, we'll put 80% of the land into an agricultural trust in perpetuity, and they'll all thank us. But we had an overwhelming, resounding, like, no way are you going to open up a business in this neighborhood. And it was just the unknown. So you had to we- really
0: convey that vision to, to them. Because it sound from your side, and I could see how, I could even see right now, how excited you would have been about all of these things and just the, the bullet points that you just rattled off right there. But, you know, trying to pitch that to an entire community, you have a limited amount of time maybe to do that in front of a committee. And, Uh, Yeah. yeah, Gosh. How did you get the buy-in?
1: Well, you know, my even my even good friends and people we've known for a long time had their reservations. But my parents had built up such goodwill in the community for so long that they got buy-in from all those people who knew us. But people who didn't notice were just. It really needed to be presented in a much more professional way with what the vision was, and we did. We made way too many assumptions, and so we fell on our face. It took. How do us a they long. feel now? Well, there. So the, the 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 few times we've had to go back to get more um, entitlements, um, we got like a hundred percent buy-in.
0: Oh, okay, great. Yeah.
1: We wanted to be good neighbors. Tough to when you you live right next to a residence and they want to turn into a business. Mm-hmm. So. We fully understood their reservations, but they allowed us to open it and run it. And then we started getting their buy-in and they started coming here and they did events here. And, you know, a lot of them, some of the people who fought us tooth and nail became some of our biggest supporters and have had their kids get married here. And so it's been very rewarding from that standpoint.
0: I think if you didn't really know that it was here, you could just drive by. It's not like, you know, this is sort of a you've done a really good job sort of organically kind of inserting yourself into this community. It doesn't really look like, although you're a disruptive business what you're not, disrupt, we're not disruptive we don't we to know, the, we, don't,
1: we don't like to use that word i know what you mean okay <laughs> i know exactly what you're, but no we're not disruptive
0: you don't feel like you're disruptive
1: no i th- i think what's happened is no we're not we're not disruptive i think it is w- what's wrong with the word i want to know that i think you i thought you're using like the business term but disruptive yeah the business like oh, no no, no but just as long as everybody understands they are using that term yes, the not business the, term when you're talking about a neighborhood oh, and you no, use the no, word no, disruptive no. It, it just hits on all the, the things that p- worry people that's what um, I was going to say I was going to say we
0: you have a disruptive business that isn't disruptive to the community that's right,
1: that's right. and that's
0: yeah, that's what I was trying to say because it seems as though you guys take a lot of time to care about not only the environment but you know the surrounding just you you take the you know you're very sensitive to the culture the environment the neighborhood the and you're still successful I mean that's incredible that you haven't had to sacrifice anywhere or have you
1: No. Well, you know, there's always Mm trade-offs. And in fact, you know, preservation doesn't go hand in hand with sustainability all the time. Mm -hmm. And and that's another discussion on construction that, you know, there's a lot of great green building that does not go well with preservation. In fact, the best, most sustainable thing you could do is retrofit an old building. You tear it down Mm -hmm. In the environmental impact on it goes for you know decades, if not hundreds of years, to mm-hmm. get. it. So if you build, you take down the old building and build a brand new one, and all in green construction. You've actually done more damage to the environment. Mm-hmm. So we made strong... And you don't get lead points by doing preservation, necessarily. Mm-hmm. You don't get lead points if you have an organic farm. You get lead points if you build downtown and you're next to... Uh, and you put a bike rack for your employees. Or you get lead points if you put yourself next to a bus stop. But you don't get lead points if you're an organic farm. And I see. So, anyway, I, I got a little bit off track, but... um. I think to answer your question, we were not trying to create a business. We were trying to create a preservation-based, market-based solution, and it wasn't just about the buildings, it was about the land. So, there's all we grew up in this in in this valley, and all this valley is getting gobbled up. People are losing their irrigation rights. For a long time we were misguided and, as a community in thinking that Things like trees were bad in the valley, and that you shouldn't be planting trees because they take too much water. And they mm. were, they were actually um, paving the inside of acequias because they thought it was a waste of water for it to go down into the water table. Now we're realizing those were huge mistakes from an ecological standpoint. And so keeping these some of these old lands in the north valley with with hundred year old trees, these ecosystems that are here are are really important. If you don't plant any of the replant the trees or you don't keep the, the flood irrigation going in certain key areas, it will undermine the ecosystem. And that's what's happening down in the valley. So it, it can get hurt more with development. So if we went back to our zoning of, you know, one house per acre, one and a half house per acre, we could have cookie-cuttered this place up with a bunch of homes. Instead, we gave 70% of the land to a trust in perpetuity, and we're trying to water responsibly. But what we're growing has a value-added product and also is creating jobs and is, is doing other things. That's, so trying to have people think about that with all the land that we have. So across the street, the village of Los Ranchos, we were involved in getting a bond approved to buy that land for the entire community. And it's 25 acres of land that is, will be open forever. And then the city of Albuquerque has a, a land attached to it that's almost 150 acres. So you're looking at one of the largest pieces of farmland in any urban area in the United States is in the dead middle of Albuquerque, which is right across the street. Mm-hmm. So all these discussions we've had have had ripple effects. And I think they're creating a nice discussion about the importance of these lands and our food shed and the stories behind the food shed and just being purposeful about the way you make decisions.
0: Wow. This is so interesting because this is such a different type of, I mean, I, and I don't want to say business because it's like the businesses came out of this much bigger and higher purpose mission. I think I'm, I think I'm starting to get it. You know <laughs> what I mean? Cause I think I thought Los poblanos, lavender hand cream and candles and honey and all these things in compo, the restaurant and, and when, but there's so much more behind it and yeah. it's, all these th- businesses are supporting this much greater purpose, which I think is so incredible. I get well, it now. It took it, me it a little feels, while, but I get it now. It feels
1: good. And it's, you know, not everybody it, it, it sees it from a, they just, sometimes they think you're just growing your business and that it's it's fully market. It's just that you're just trying to capitalize on the business. Mm-hmm. We took a huge loan to expand the business against the value of the property. So we're, we're in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And now we have we have 215 people employed here in five different businesses. And the thing that feels really great about it is, you know, when we go and write checks for our invoices and bills. You know, it's a big old fat stack. And it's all these people you know. It's all locals. They're farmers. It's the person growing the eggs. It's Kay and Molly's towels. It's uh, the co-op. We're the largest... I think, but if not the largest, we're certainly in the top three customers for La Montanita Co-op, okay. which is which is a for uh, not for profit business. It's owned by the community, and so we don't order food from Cisco Foods or from Shamrock or from one of the big food distributors. We're ordering either from all the farmers in New Mexico. But if it's something that is not available in New Mexico or they don't have distribution, the co-op handles it all. Oh, wow. And so, you know, we write huge checks to the co-op, which are are then the co-op is distributing money to all these little farmers and purveyors and food makers. And so we will occasionally pull all those out in manager meetings just to to reinforce what everybody's helping sustain, uh, what everybody's helping build and how we're keeping it in the community.
0: So what do you look for in adding an employee to this businesses? What are the type of people you're trying to attract? And I'm assuming you probably have awesome retention.
1: Well, we, we have, we're very fortunate with our retention for, of, in, for our fields. It's Mm -hmm. great. But in hospitality, it's, it's high. It is. High, it's speaking. high turnover. Yeah. Yeah. It's eighty to three hundred percent. It's some it's some crazy number, and that's those are you know usually on the service side for you know, so it's housekeepers or, or waiters and but for managers and management we have very little turn, turnover. We've have um, we have a gentleman Jesus Dominguez who's been here uh, for almost forty years and he kind of takes care of all of us. He's one of the uh, grounds maintenance guys and. Uh, He was here when I was a kid. And another couple, Jesus Ulguin and his wife Ramona, they worked here for 40 years. And so they started when I was a kid. So they're a big part of our culture and our story. And, And my parents have lived on property for 40 years. And so... The type of people that are we, your parents
0: still on property?
1: They're still on property. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, and they're they're involved in the business. I mean, they work in the gardens and they talk to guests and they you know are involved in the bees. But they were the ones who first planted lavender, and they, my dad took care of the bees, and my mom made the first hand salve, and so they 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 were you know the visionaries of kind of the idea. But when I t- when the, I took over, they had eight employees and six guest rooms, and now we've got. 215 employees in all these different businesses, so it's changed quite a bit. And it wasn't me alone coming up with growing and shaping the business. It was really all these kind of wonderful, talented managers that we have were a big part of building the business. And you mentioned you know, our, our chef, Jonathan Pernod, and uh, he's been here for about 11 years and native New Mexican and he's cooked in some of the great restaurants in California and New York and at James Beard House. When he was young, and is a great farmer, understands the soil, and you know he's made a big commitment to make this model work. It is not an easy business model. I mean, when you're you just have to work a lot more hours. If you just get all your food from Cisco, you write one purchase order, you're done. Mm -hmm. But those guys are sourcing from dozens of different purveyors, and so that means, and as fresh as it is, it means they're Writing those purchase orders daily, to be for fresh produce to be dropped off daily by all those groups of people. So it's 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 a challenging model, and so we have a lot of committed people that are doing it because they believe in it.
0: It seems like it's it's a way of life, you know, it's a career, but it almost seems like it's even it's just deeper than that. It has to be. It seems.
1: It absolutely is. People are not here because um, for the money, and uh, our goal you know, we were a loyalty based business, but when you get, when you've got a fire on all pistons and you raise people's expectations that are coming here and they want the experiences that you have promised to give them, you got to deliver. And so you have to become a much more professional business. So we used to just look for people that were, that believed in the mission and that were earnest, that wanted to do the, willing to do the work. Now We have to have that, but they have to have expertise in their fields. They have to, you know, understand if they're on the lodging side, they have to understand, you know, room revenue management and how to handle housekeeping. And our farmers need to understand, you know, soil chemistry. And a lot of people became experts here. Like they came here young and they've all become experts. So they're homegrown experts. In In other cases, we've been lucky enough to bring some really talented people in that have helped build our business
0: awesome well what are you most excited about right now
1: well you know it's interesting we just we finished the the restaurant is going to be celebrating its second anniversary in that space campo so campo we had a restaurant in the old hacienda but when we opened it up in this new space it was just it was something else because Mm -hmm. it was on the edge of the field and campo means field And, um, we did, we have an open fire and three lines of, of cooks that are all foods coming from different areas. And, and so we renamed the restaurant and that we're coming into our second anniversary next month. Okay. And so it feels like we've been on the dead run for the last 14 years, but the business is really is the right framework now. It's the right size. We have 50 guest rooms. And we're we love our employees and the team that's here, but we have a we have a hundred year business plan, and that is for us to keep doing all the things that to keep on farming and keep asking questions about the bees and the environment, and uh, we feel like we've been luck fortunate enough to have a seat at the table about the New Mexican on on the New Mexican farming community, but also in the business community about what's what's the right growth for New Mexico? And, and what are the right businesses that, that, that work for New Mexico? It's almost like our, our customer base. Like If the person wants the most luxury experience in the world, we're not necessarily the place for them, Mm -hmm. you know, like they really have to be interested in architecture or, you know, really delicious food, healthy food, healthy rooms. And we push different types of benefits of being here, like that you get to open up your windows, for instance, like, because I think it's something like 98% of new hotels cannot have operable windows just because of zoning laws and, and they don't want to have to clean the rooms because so much dust and things come in. Well, we kind of push fresh air. Uh, What is that? Would you rather have a seventy-two inch screen screen TV, or would you rather be surrounded by lavender fields and have fresh air? And so, you don't need lavender spray for your pillow
0: because you can just open your windows. That's
1: right. (laughs) Right. That's right. So, if we finding those customers, that's why we have a a kind of a diehard following. If someone says, "Oh yeah," if you're looking for you know the most luxury experience. And they they come here, and they're they're being told that you know we're they're expecting white tablecloth, fine dining experience that's not us either mm-hmm. so I think it's always important for us to be clear about what we're trying to do and the type of business that we we are because we can knock it out of the park if we get the right customers here and I kind of feel like that's trying to attract businesses or people to New Mexico. It is not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Albuquerque is not for everybody but we feel it's a special place and we end with you know all these hipster places that are that are the economies are so strong in places like Denver and San Antonio and mm-hmm. Austin and but we like that we are a little rough around the edges in Albuquerque certainly we have lots of social challenges and educational challenges and so how can these businesses and be thoughtful and be members of the community in a way that adds to our state and so We're interested in having those conversations, Mm -hmm. and we're interested in kind of shamelessly using Los Poblanos to push issues of preservation and sustainability and soil health and proper growth and proper planning and spaces and places. What makes this a great place, and what makes New Mexico a great place, and what should we be talking about to promote our state or to invest in our community?
0: So before we wrap up here, what do you feel like is one thing that anybody listening today could do in their own space in Albuquerque to make Albuquerque just a little bit better?
1: You know, I would say get involved in something. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to make an impact in Albuquerque. It's, it's, it's a city of a, with a lot of needs. And if you come from another market, and you wanna volunteer at a school or something, you can make an impact in that little community. In Albuquerque, you can come and you could make a much bigger impact. The ripple effect is much bigger here and mm-hmm. people, we, we need people that are willing that have good ideas, that can jump on a committee or a board, a school board, or or push an initiative. There's a lot of great concepts, but actually doing the work and executing and getting it done is a different story. But I think we're in a good place. I think Albuquerque is, you know, there's some exciting things going on. And today's newspaper with the New York Times featured about eight to ten businesses and things to do in Albuquerque. And they, they did a great job. And they're all the places that we... That we love. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Durant's Pharmacy is on there. Uh, A guy named Bobby Gonzalez, who is the partner of our sommelier and our director of wine and spirits, he's the lead into the article and he's giving these wonderful tours of our history in New Mexico. And that's the. So it's great that a place, I mean, a, a publication like the New York Times can recognize when something is unique and that's what they covered. They covered all the stuff that that is makes Albuquerque special and there was there's was, there's been some other magazines and we're proud of this stuff because if we can if we can bring some national attention to Albuquerque and bring have them cast a spotlight on all the positive stuff we feel very proud and another magazine called Monocle magazine that it's based in London and it's an international publication and we were able to get them in here to do an article on family businesses in New Mexico. And oh, okay. they interviewed the mayor and they interviewed the Garcia family and the family that does all the flamenco here in Albuquerque and the family who owns Duran's Pharmacy. So there's a lot of great stories and all these little business are helping move the needle.
0: That's wonderful. Where can we learn a little bit more about Los Poblanos and the initiatives behind Los Poblanos point us in the right direction? give us a little your your little sort of plug uh so we can make sure that we we head to the right place to to learn more.
1: You know, the best way to learn is to come and have an experience here. That's the best way to learn. So, if you book a couple nights and you know, we have literature in the rooms that allows you to kind of understand why we made certain decisions of things in the rooms and then you can sign up for a tour there's we have tours walks by Wes West Brittenham is our garden and landscape manager and he is very knowledgeable he's been kind of there's a small group of people in New Mexico who have been instrumental at understanding our plants in New Mexico and we're we're fortunate enough to have Wes is taking care of all our gardens and so it's a to be able to have that experience. And then you eat in the restaurant and our servers and our bartenders. And one of the great things is actually to sit at the chef's table. So there's six seats in the kitchen and our chefs walk you through the decisions that they made on how they made these dishes. And the sommelier talks about his pairings and he goes from Luna Rosa wine down in Southern New Mexico to burgundy mm-hmm. and then he and then and they'll pair it with some type of food and then one of our chefs will be talking about the cardoons that we used he, here and the the history of the cardoons and why we paired it with red chili and then dylan our our sommelier will be will pair it with wine from corrales from milagro winery and they're telling you all these stories so they're just jumping all over the world and making you know connecting these dots of why they made these decisions that's a really cool experience. So, and it's a great value for what it is. So for people that really love food and love history to sit at that chef's table, but that's the, those are the best ways are, we're trying to have our website be more of a great place. You can go for all this history.
0: There's a, there's a lot there already.
1: There's a lot there. And sometimes we just feel like we're barely scraping the surface and scratching the surface and, getting all those stories on there. But we have a great marketing team and Lauren Kemner, who's working on what's the right way to get these stories out there. And we can't really do it fast enough. We're creating stories faster than we can tell them. Sure. And so we're hoping to add some sort of cultural concierge or cultural programming person who is a full-time person on site that would connect the dots. So if we had a cooking class it might be a famous chef and that chef cooks with the team and then our farmers work with that chef in the field. And so it, it, it again, kind of syncing it up to all the businesses here.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being on ABQ cast today. It's really exciting to meet you again and to learn and really begin to grasp and understand the bigger mission behind Los Poblano. So thanks for sharing your story today.
1: Ryan, I appreciate it. I appreciate the time and uh, your interest in promoting Albuquerque and, and New Mexico and why it's a great place. So thanks so much.
0: All right, Albuquerque, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Review on iTunes as well. I will read all of those reviews. I don't miss anyone. And listen every week to Cast. If you head on over to abqcast.com you will see a link for our group abq insiders join us there on facebook or just search us up on facebook abq insiders and you can be one of the inner circle so hope you enjoyed today and we look forward to touching base with you next week thanks so much